<clears throat> Got to compose myself for a second <laughs> after singing those words. Well, good morning. <clears throat> and we've said it already, but let's say it again. He is risen. Brothers and sisters, family members and guests, I'm going to begin by, it's probably not a good way for a pastor to begin an Easter sermon, but I'm going to begin by stealing a phrase (laughs) that's actually already been stolen, so I'm kind of Robin Hooding it here, and I want to repurpose it in sort of a strange way. We'll hear the secular world sometimes when they talk about an important day. Maybe it's the, the Super Bowl, or the first day of March Madness, or the opening day, uh, or opening Thursday at the Masters. They often say, this is our Christmas. Of course, that's a misappropriation of that whole term, but you know what they're saying. Well, today is Resurrection Sunday, and for the church to steal their phrase, this is our Christmas. <laughs> of course, we already have that on the calendar as well, and we know what that means, but I hope you take my meaning, that there's no more important day in the Christian calendar than today. That we know on this Sunday, that many thousand years, two thousand years ago, we know what happened. The day our Savior put death to death and rose from the dead. That's the glorious topic that we get to talk about this morning. It's a privilege to preach it, and I hope you know the privilege you have to experience the joy that comes from that truth this morning. We've come to worship a risen King. This morning we we come to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, an event Jonathan Edwards described as the most joyful event that ever came to pass. Friday night we spoke of the cross, but if we're following the timeline, it's been quiet for some time around the tomb of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth breathed his last breath about three o'clock on Friday afternoon. He had endured false accusations, mocking, scourging. A crown of thorns was pressed into his head. He carried his own cross to Golgotha, where he was nailed to the tree by his hands and feet. And he hung there amidst more verbal taunting from his enemies for nearly six hours before committing his spirit to his heavenly father. Late in the day on Friday, Jesus is taken down from the cross. And having received permission from Pontius Pilate, Joseph of Arimathea is given custody of the body. With the help of Nicodemus as well as the women who followed Jesus, they wrap Jesus' body, they prepare him for burial, and they roll a stone in front of the tomb. Meanwhile, at the request of the Jewish authorities, the tomb is sealed And Roman centurions are posted outside to ensure the body remains where it lay. From sundown Friday throughout the day on Saturday, the tomb is silent. Seemingly, it's over. It's done. Jesus, the miracle worker and the prospective Messiah, has died. And his disciples are nowhere to be found. As the sun rises on Sunday morning, we find the women heading to the tomb to pay their respects and further prepare the body for internment. And despite Jesus' repeated teaching on the subject to his disciples, it's clear they have no expectation of a miracle. Let's begin this morning in Matthew 28. 
And let's join those women on their way to the tomb. Matthew 28, 1. Now after the Sabbath, Good Friday, Saturday Sabbath, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you were looking for Jesus who has been crucified. Oh, look at verse 6. He is not here, for he is risen. Just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. Remember that after sundown, the first day of the week began by Jewish reckoning. There's some discussion as to exactly when Jesus arose from the dead, but it was clearly on the first day of the week. That's why we gather on Sundays, by the way. Thus, Jesus' resurrection had already occurred when these women approached the tomb very early on Sunday morning. These faithful women were evidently bringing spices they had prepared. That's what Luke 23, 56 tells us. In order to show their devotion to Christ by anointing his dead body. Spices were poured over a dead body to counteract the odor of decay and also as a symbolic expression of loving devotion. Again, what does this indicate? That they did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead. But the message of the angel is clear. Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Luke 24, 5 adds, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Christ is risen. That is certain. But why? That's what I will attempt to answer this morning as we plumb the depths of a beautiful and sovereign act of the living God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the time we've had already to adore you, to worship you, to lift your name high to speak of you as the only living God, as the risen King. Lord, bless the preaching of your word this morning. Bless our time together as believers, as followers of you, Lord. And if anyone does not know this glorious truth here this morning, that perhaps you might draw one to yourself in faith in Christ your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And if you know 1 Corinthians 15 well, you know there are numerous places we could go in that glorious chapter. We're going to zoom in on verses 20 through 22. But I do want to start reading the first four verses of the chapter because Paul is setting the tone, is stating his idea why he's writing this chapter in those first four verses. So 1 Corinthians 15, 1 it says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Well, we better know the gospel, shouldn't we? The gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance, the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now if we go forward in verses 12 through 19, Paul plays with the thought that Christ was not risen. What would be the results if Christ were not resurrected? And he recounts the consequences that will follow, one of which is that we are of all men most miserable or most to be pitied if there is no resurrection. In verse 20, he returns to the truth of the gospel that he just started in verses 1 through 4, specifically the resurrection. So 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. When we read verse 20, we need to read it with emphasis. Because that, that but at the beginning of the sentence is in contrast to the suggestion that Christ is not raised. That, that, that there was this, this false belief that maybe Christ was not raised, and therefore if he was not raised, there is no future resurrection for us as well. But Paul throws this strong contrast and it says, but now, but now Christ has been raised. If, if he were not raised, we would be miserable, but he has been raised. Take comfort. Paul uses the perfect tense here. When they use the perfect tense, what that indicates is a completed action that has abiding results to the present day. So Christ has been raised. That is done, it is finished, and the results are still living on in the present time. One commentator describes this verse as a ringing affirmation. Another calls it Paul's joyful outburst. Paul's statement is free of doubt. It's a declaration. It's equivalent to our common profession this morning. If we could sum up verse 20 in three words, it would be, he is risen. Christ has been raised. Raised, that word is used 141 times in the New Testament. It describes people rising to their feet after being healed by Jesus. As well as people rising from sleep or a seated position. But it is also used frequently to describe the resurrection of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, and in the will of God. The word basically screams physical, bodily resurrection. He was laid down, he got up. He was dead, he is now alive. And by the way, it's used a whopping 15 times in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you want to study the resurrection or share the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great chapter to explore. Of course, those who are asleep... I had to move my slide, shouldn't I? Okay, yeah, here we go. <clears throat> For those who are asleep, those are believers who have died at the time of Paul's writing. Of course, that number has grown a lot since that time. The verb there, fall asleep, koimeomai, isn't that a fun Greek word to say, is invariably used in the New Testament as a metaphor for death only when speaking of the death of believers. Only believers fall asleep. There is no incidence in Scripture where this term is used for the death of an unbeliever. Why? Because the death of a believer is temporary. They will rise to life again, never to experience the second death. It's the perfect way to describe the death of God's elect. 
The body, not the soul, the body is asleep, basically awaiting the alarm clock. Perhaps we could say a trumpet that awakes them to eternity with Christ. Later in the letter, Paul speaks of those who will not sleep, namely those who are alive at Christ's coming. But I want to drill down on the metaphor that Paul employs here, and this is our picture this morning, and that is the idea of the first fruits. The first fruits. And again, in an agricultural society, that would make much more sense than necessarily it does for many of us. But we need to understand the picture that Paul uses here. That term, first fruits, it's a parquet in the Greek. It's from the Hebrew word bakur, or bikurim would be first fruits. It's the first of the crops, when the fruit was ripened and gathered, and it was offered to God. It was the first bit of the harvest, and it was brought to the temple and offered to God. In Hebrew, it comes from the verb bakar, which means to be born first. And when we study the Old Testament, it's applied variously to crops, to animals, to sons. It was the first of what was produced. So the term first fruits is rooted in the Old Testament. You kind of have to have an Old Testament understanding to get the first fruits. And in the New Testament, it's almost exclusively Pauline. Paul is the one that employs this metaphor. Seven of the nine times in the New Testament, it's from Paul. Interestingly enough, the other two uses in the, in the New Testament are James, a book that's heavily Jewish, and then Revelation, a book that is rooted in the Old Testament. And the Greek term occurs 68 times in the Septuagint. So clearly, this is an important metaphor that we need to understand. So let's try to understand it. Most poignantly, first fruits is also connected to the Passover. Now, we need to know about the Passover if we're going to accurately study the passion of Jesus Christ. So this illustration would certainly resonate with a Jewish audience. But the Feast of the Passover, and I think this is how we primarily think of it, commemorated the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt, right? When, when I talk about Passover, you probably go to Exodus. That's the first place that you go, and rightfully so. But what you need to understand, it was also a great harvest festival. It was about the provision of the Lord. It fell just at the time when the barley harvest was due to be gathered in. By the way, this is covered in the law, probably not in most of your devotional readings, but it's in Leviticus 23, if you would like to see these rules in terms of how the harvest was to be done. But let me explain it to you. When the barley was cut, it was brought to the temple. And there it was threshed out with with soft canes because you could not bruise it. You needed to bring an unblemished offering. And then it was dried over the fire. And the fire that they used or the pan they used over the fire was perforated. Why not just use a regular pan? Well, it needed to be perforated because the fire needed to touch every grain of barley you brought. The, the, The offering needed to be purified in its entirety. It was then exposed to the wind so the chaff would be blown away. Finally, it would be ground up in a barley mill, and the flour was offered to God. And the point is, the offering consecrated the entire harvest. I bring my first fruits to the Lord, I offer that to the Lord, and then the Lord consecrates the harvest. That's what's meant by first fruits. It's significant to note that not until after that was done could any of the new barley be bought and sold in the shops. Only after that was done could bread be made from the new flour. The first fruits were a sign of the harvest to come. It implied later fruits. First fruits imply later fruits. And the resurrection of Jesus was a sign of the resurrection to come for all believers. 
Just as the new barley could not be used until the first fruits had been duly offered, so the new harvest of life could not come until Jesus had been raised from the dead. Let me show you the timeline, and this is just the beauty of the Word of God and His law. The Passover began on the Hebrew calendar in the month of Nisan on the 14th day. That's the first month, the 14th day. That's when the Passover would be commenced. That's when the Passover lamb was slaughtered. That's when the Passover meal was prepared. Well, if we're following the timeline of the Passion Week of Christ, Nisan 14 was Good Friday. That's the day that Christ gave his life. The day the Passover lamb was to be slain is the day that Christ hung on the cross. Nisan 16, two days later, the Sunday that follows the Sabbath. And if you remember Matthew 28, 1 that we just read, Matthew was very intentional in saying the day that followed the Sabbath. The Jews offered a sacrifice of first fruits to the Lord the day after that Sabbath. So following the Passover, then a Sabbath, bring the offering of the first fruits. That was Sunday. Well, what happened on that glorious Sunday? That's the resurrection Sunday. The first fruits of those who are asleep was offered on that Sunday. Oh, and if that weren't enough, there is another date on the calendar, and that is the month of Sivan, the sixth day of Sivan, and that's where we read the, the festival of Shavuot, which we know better as Pentecost. Fifty days later, on Pentecost the Jews would present another offering of new grain that they also called an offering of first fruits. They celebrated the full harvest that began 50 days earlier with the first sheaves brought in from the field and consecrated to the Lord. That's the day the Holy Spirit fell. That's the day the church was born, the firstborn of many brethren, the firstborn of those who fall asleep. It lines up perfectly with the Jewish law. The first fruits is a pledge, a pledge of future harvest provided by God. In Romans 8.23, the spirit is the first fruits, securing the future redemption of the body. We see similar language here in 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the spirit as a pledge. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance. So the first fruits and the pledge are parallel ideas. Pledge is arabon in the Greek. It's a commercial word denoting a, a, a pledge of sorts, an object handed over by a buyer to a seller until the purchase price is paid in full. What will we call that today? A down payment. Earnest money. I put this down and I'm guaranteeing you that the rest will be paid off. And that down payment is a guarantee that the purchase price will be paid not in part but in full. It's a guarantee that the fruits that follow the first fruits will receive identical treatment as the first fruits. It's a promise that the truth of the gospel will come to pass and the glory of the Lord will be ours in Christ. And that's achieved in what we often call the great exchange. What is the great exchange? Ah, oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Let's talk about that for a second. The great exchange can be summed up in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, exchange, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He, namely God, made him who knew no sin, namely Jesus, to be sin. We talked a little bit about this Friday night, but what does that mean? 
that God the Father, in all his perfect righteousness, treated Jesus as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe. That's how Christ was treated by the Father. When in fact, Jesus had committed none of them. Not one single solitary one of them. What does that mean? It means Christ hung on the cross a holy man, a blameless man, a spotless lamb. But God deals with Jesus on the cross as if he committed every sin. He committed none, but he's treated as if he committed every sin. That's my sin. That's your sin. And so Jesus paid the penalty we deserve for offending a holy and perfect God with our iniquities. Because the wages of sin is death. And if that were not mind-blowing enough, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, God turns around and then treats you and treats me if you are in Christ this morning, as if we lived Jesus' perfect life. Completely forgiven, endowed with the perfect righteousness of a sinless Savior. When God looks at the one who has trusted Christ alone for salvation, I pray that is you this morning, he sees the imputed righteousness of his beloved Son. Praise the Lord and hallelujah. And it was the sovereign grace of God and Christ willingly laying down his life at Calvary that made that not only possible, but guaranteed. The future harvest was blessed because the Lord accepted and honored the offering of the firstfruits, the atoning death of his only begotten son, and the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Same term. And these whom he predestined he also called. And these whom he called he also justified. And those whom he justified he also glorified. In both Colossians 1.18 and Revelation 1.5 Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead. Which again solidifies our understanding of a literal death. And later a bodily physical resurrection. As he is, we will be. Christ in power resurrected, as will we be when he comes. So Christ as the first fruits. We must understand this. The context is the resurrection. I.e., Jesus is the first to be raised from the dead and representative of more resurrection bodies to come. He will not rise alone. Okay, but someone might ask. Jesus isn't the first person to be raised from the dead. We've read our Gospels. Maybe we've read the Old Testament as well. What about the widow of Zarephath's son, or Jairus' daughter, or the widow of Nain's son, or Lazarus? Weren't they all raised from the dead? So how is Jesus the firstfruits? Once again, I'm glad you're asking such good questions this morning. There's an important difference, and you need to understand this. It's an important difference. Certainly those miracles were people being raised from death to life. That's exactly what happened. However, understand this, every single one of those miracle recipients died again. They died again. Not so with Jesus. That's the difference. His resurrection was to a life that knows no death. And in that sense, he was the first and the forerunner 
of all who were to be in him. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the first to be raised and, and be raised to life, never to taste death again. John Stott said, we live and die, Christ died and lived. That is what we celebrate this morning. That is why we sing. That is why our hope is secure in a risen Savior. Let's move to verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. What do we have here in verse 21? Two men and two very different outcomes. They are identified explicitly in the next verse as Adam and Jesus Christ. And here's the fact of the matter this morning. You belong to one of these two men. How so? Well, Scripture teaches the fundamental unity of the human race. Let me show you. Acts 17, 26, Paul says this. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. He made from one man every other man and woman. And because of that, we are all inextricably tied to Adam. We have a common ancestor. And while that might be interesting and that might be cool to think about when we trace all the genealogies and all that, that's not good news from a spiritual standpoint. Notice the parallel. By a man, Adam came death. By a man, Jesus also came the resurrection of the dead. Theologically, we would say that these two figures are our federal heads. We have corporate solidarity with either one or the other. You are tied to one or the other. By the way, two men, this explains to us that Christ's resurrection and subsequently the resurrection of the believer is physical. The man, Christ Jesus, God in the flesh. Adam's sin brought disaster not only on himself, but all of his posterity. And if it ended there, we would be lost. Had God not intervened, we would be stuck in Adam. But while Adam's sin had far-reaching consequences, oh, so had Christ's resurrection. D.A. Carson once said, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. (laughs) Christ's offering concerned not only himself, but all of those who would believe in him. Just as death came into the world through Adam, so life came into the world through Christ. By the way, do you think Christ and Paul believed in a historical Adam? This was a man who existed, was created, and fell. This is because if Adam is just a myth, if Adam is just a fairy tale, this admonition is meaningless. If there was no first Adam, who cares about a second Adam? Your Bible is true. Christ, the second Adam, was fully man. He lived a perfect, sinless life where Adam failed. And he did so, honestly, with infinitely more temptations and trials than Adam could ever imagine. Isn't it fitting that as it was through a man that the corruption entered the race, so it should be through a man that it was overcome? So the question is, this morning, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Those are your only options. And the destinations in both men are clear. Adam leads to death. Christ leads to everlasting life. We see that in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In Adam all die. By the way, that's present tense. What do you mean all? I mean all who have descended from Adam. Anyone here not from the line of Adam? Unfortunately, we're all there. 
in Christ, all will be made alive. By the way, future tense. It's going to happen. What do you mean all in this sense? Well, I mean all who have placed their trust in Christ alone for salvation by grace through faith. Don't read universalism into that verse. Only one, the only way one comes to Christ is through faith. Simply put, in Adam, all that are to die, die. And in Christ, all that are to live, live. Guaranteed, mark it down, debt is paid. Let me put it another way. We descend from sinful Adam, which means we are fallen, we are finite, we are spiritually dead, bound by our sin nature and all the vulnerabilities, don't we know them well, that come inherent to humanity. In that state, picture this, it means you come to the judgment seat on your own merit. It means that you fall woefully short of God's holy standard. One who comes to the judgment seat in that state will be told, depart from me, I never knew you. And that was all of our states before Christ. But, praise God, there's another Adam, a second Adam, and his name is Jesus. But you can only be placed into the second Adam by faith. When you put your faith in Christ, your full trust, your complete allegiance, it means you have been raised up to new life no longer under the condemnation of sin, and you now come to the judgment on the basis of not your own merit, but of the atoning work and the resurrection of your perfect Savior. Those in Christ still die physically. If Christ does not return, we will all pass into physical death, but eternal life will follow. There's no one who has been justified by the person and work of Christ, as we saw in Romans 8, who will not see full glorification. Why? Because Christ, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep, has secured our place in the future harvest. A parallel passage is in Romans 5, and I do want to touch on that briefly. Don't worry, I won't preach this entire passage as well. It's tempting, it's a good passage. But the typology of Adam and Christ is developed a little more fully in Romans 5, and I just want to touch on a couple of the aspects that are there. Not a long trip from Corinthians to Romans. Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world... And death through sin, and so death spread to all men. See this same parallel. Because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Oh, there's that second Adam predicted. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. That's being made perfect in front of God by the righteousness of Christ. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, 
Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men, all men who would believe. For as, though, for as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Either you are a sinner in Adam or you are righteous in Christ. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul exposits the, the, the doctrine of justification by faith with the added focus that sin is the cause of death. That's Paul's main point. Death is the direct consequence of sin. It's inexorable. It's unavoidable. Because Adam sinned, we will all die. Just as sin and death entered the world through one man, Adam, so also the gift of grace abounded to many through one man, Christ. Just as Adam's disobedience implicated humanity in sin and death, Christ's obedience resulted in the free gift of eternal life for many. The far-reaching consequences of Adam's sin are counterbalanced by the far-reaching consequences of Christ's sacrifice and resurrection. Simply put, man rebelled and God restored. If he had not taken the initiative, we would never have been found. Notice what we are the recipients of in that passage. A free gift, grace, righteousness, found only in Christ by grace through faith. Through his obedience and perfect sacrifice, we are made righteous. Is it any wonder why we put every ounce of our hope in the truth of the resurrection? F.B. Meyer, he was a Baptist pastor. He was a contemporary and friend of D.L. Moody. He said this, Let us quiet our fears by considering what satisfies Christ may well satisfy us. Let us dare to stand without a qualm in God's presence by virtue of the glorious and completed sacrifice of Calvary. Let us silence every tremor of unrest by recalling the dying cry on the cross and the witness of the empty grave. Spurgeon said, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I risk my whole eternity on the resurrection. If you've come here this morning with your hope in anything else, I pray you'll fix your eyes on the author and finisher of saving faith. I pray you would believe on Christ. Repent towards Christ. Follow him. Eternity is at stake. For whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I want to close with a prayer that I adapted from, from a prayer that Tim Challies once printed up. So as I read this, pray with me. Our Father in heaven, today is the day we call Resurrection Sunday. So today, of all days, we thank you that you so loved the world that you sent your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Today, of all days, we are thankful that he lived a sinless life and so fulfilled the law. He kept it perfectly in its every part. Today of all days, we are thankful that he who knew no sin became sin for us on the cross, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Today of all days, we are thankful that he rose from the grave so that we could have life in him. Thank you that through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you provided a way, the only way, for us to be saved from our sin. 
We thank you that you sent your spirit to dwell within us, to guide us to all truth, to warn us away from all evil, to seal us as your own possession, to be the guarantee of our inheritance, to equip us for all righteousness, to sanctify us to all holiness, to assure us of your love and faithfulness. What a joy, what a blessing, what a cause for gratitude, what a savior. We thank you that you have promised us that just as death could not hold our Lord Jesus Christ, death will not be able to hold those of us who have put our faith in him. Just as Christ rose from the grave and went to the Father's side, we too will rise from the grave and go to be with you. And so in a time when death seems to be on the prowl, we do not need to fear our ultimate destiny. With our eternity fixed and certain, we can give thanks even in a world turned upside down by sin because death has no claim on us. Father, we thank you for health, for safety. We thank you for care and provision. We thank you for jobs and for studies. We thank you for food and for shelter. We thank you for rain and for sunshine. We thank you for the budding of trees and the blossoming of flowers. We thank you for good books and good times. We thank you for family and friends. We thank you for singing and the Lord's Supper. We thank you for your word, for prayer. We thank you that we can express gratitude. We thank you that we know the one from whom all blessings flow and that we are not left expressing gratitude to the universe or to empty skies. But we can express gratitude to the maker and the sustainer of all things, to the giver of all good gifts. We can speak to you. And know we are heard as we say thank you. And we pray all this in the name of the one who conquered death. The first fruits of the resurrection. The risen Savior. The mighty coming King. The Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.